morning, everyone. If you're new to fullness, welcome. Glad you're here. Pray that the worship, which I always think is awesome, um, blessed you this morning. Thank you to our worship team for <clears throat> their incredibly hard work and dedication and just what they do for us. I'm so grateful. Um, last night, I had the privilege of um, speaking at the Love Lady Center. Um, I think every preacher should have that opportunity once in their life. It's, it was a blessing um, to, to speak there. Thank you to Paul uh, Hughes for inviting me to speak at the end of their 24-hour prayer. It was, a, it was a great opportunity to, to, to share. Uh, I won't preach the message I preached there last night, although it was really good. Uh, <laughs> But part of the idea of the message is this, that we serve a faithful God. Um, sometimes we lose, lose track of the faithfulness and greatness of God because of the, the circumstances we're in. Sometimes we go through rough parts of life, and when we do, for some reason we think maybe God's faithfulness has decreased. Maybe God's faithfulness is backed up, but it is not true that our circumstances are dependent on God's faithfulness. As a matter of fact, it's really the opposite, which is what makes this incredible news, is that God's faithfulness not only supersedes, it helps us move through the difficulty of our circumstances. You just sang a song about God moving mountains in your life, and I know that there are some people here who need mountains moved in their circumstances, in their situations. And, and there's a reason it's called mountain-moving faith, uh, because that's how Jesus talked about it. Um, but it is the faith that God implants in you. It's his gift. It's not like the little engine that could. You know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I That's not faith. Uh, faith is this gift of God where you then in turn respond with a giving of yourself and all that you are to walk, walk in him. We live in an age where um, if nothing else this past week, we've realized again what an uncertain time we live in. Everything from politics to wars to finances to, I mean, if you keep up with the news, which I don't necessarily recommend, it's up to you. But if you keep up with current events and the news, you realize we are in incredibly uncertain times. And my premise here, uh, which I think is the biblical premise, is that God's faith will help us stand in uncertain times. Our faith in God, his faith that he's implanted in us will help us stand in these uncertain times. Because if not, you're gonna get all whacked out. Uh, if you're dependent on what's going on in the world, forget the world, uh, what's going on in your house? Uh, you know, I mean, we all got circumstances and situations, things that are happening at our jobs, our homes, our relationships. And if we start just looking there, this passage I'm going to talk about, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible uh, to interpret and to look at. So if you're new to fullness, hey, welcome. 
Glad you're here on a hard Bible day. Uh, but that's what we're going to look at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because I believe that Paul is addressing an issue that's arisen within the church in Thessalonica. And he's doing it in a pastoral sense to basically say to them, your faith still stands. God's faithfulness is still here. But in doing so, he's addressing a particular issue that they have. And the particular issue is this. Somebody has told them that they missed the second coming. Somebody told them, hey, Jesus already came back and you guys missed it. And they're all discombobulated. They're all out of whack because they're like, do we miss it? Do we miss it? Some people have quit their jobs. Some people aren't working anymore. Some people have just kind of, the church is like, as you can imagine, Paul was there three weeks, taught him, left him, writes him a, a letter back. Letter goes to them. Timothy returns. And months later, he writes him another letter because he realizes their faith is being stirred up. So in the context of writing to them, he's going to say you didn't miss it. You didn't miss the second coming because here are some things that have to happen if Jesus has come back. Um, these certain aspects. So he's going to talk about some of this, but it's a pastoral sense. Now I've got two missions this morning. One is to not make anybody mad. I don't think I can do that. Um, because one thing I've learned about teaching about the second coming is it stirs up people. Uh, they, get, they get irritated. Um, because, and here's the deal. We've got every conceivable view of what's going to happen at the second coming in this room right now. I mean, we have a myriad of views here. And um, I've got my view. Some of you got different views. Some of you got even different views. Um, what do we do? Can we still worship together? Can we still walk together with these different views? My contention is this, yes, because none of us know. I mean, the odds are higher that somebody in this room is closer to right than wrong. But there's also the odds that some other people are very, very wrong. And you know what? Our faith depends on this, the imminent return of Jesus. That's what our faith depends on. The order of it is kind of, it's tricky. It's tricky. When I was in college in the um, 70s, late 70s, um, my dad, who had been a pastor at a church in North Miami, Florida, was interviewing at another church up the coast. Uh, not the church he eventually went to in Coral Springs, but another church. And he was on the final steps of preaching and the interview and going to this church. Um, it was a very nice church, very well located. For my dad, really got engaged in the gifts of the Spirit, but he was very Baptist in his preaching. So he's going there. I've told this story before. It's been a while, but he's going to there. He's being interviewed, and then one of the committee members asks him his view on the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming. And my dad, much like my beliefs, but a little different, did not believe in what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, some of you are like, I, I don't, I, those are words, I know they're words, but I don't know 
<laughs> what all that means. So there is, there is the rapture where the church is going to be taken up to meet with Jesus. And there's a period of time also called the tribulation, seven years in the book of Revelation, though we don't know if those seven years are literal or figurative. We, I, honestly, I don't know. And a lot of stuff happening in there. So one of the more uh, popular views, the left behind view, before Left Behind ever came out, um, that um, how Lindsay wrote about in Late Great Planet Earth was there's going to be the rapture where the church is going to be taken out. Then there'll be the tribulation, the hard times, the Antichrist, and the things we're going to talk about today. And then judgment, Christ returns, uh, millennial kingdom. Again, a bunch of terms I know. So my dad believed that the teaching of the scripture was that the tribulation was going to happen before the rapture. And part of his was a pastoral sense that he wanted to train people, look, be ready in case we go through really hard times. That for him, more so than even me, the rapture he thought was an escapism mentality. Like, um, Christ is going to yank us out, all out of here, so we don't really even have to worry about this tribulation. Uh, we, don't, we don't even have to concern ourselves with it other than some bad people are going to, some bad things are going to happen. Anyway, somebody asked him about that, and he just said, and if you knew my dad now, uh, for those of you who knew him, he was very forthright. So I can only, that's a, that's a euphemism uh, euphemism is another word for another word. <laughs> it's a euphemism for blunt. And uh, so he just said to him, no, I don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. I believe we're going to be here through the tribulation, then the church. Interview over. Cut it off right there. Nope, we can't have this guy. I mean, that's how much uh, this one view matters to a lot of people. Uh, and so as I go into this, I do want to address it. I want to tell you what I see in this passage with the understanding that I know in this room we have a lot of different views. Um, but there's a lot we can agree on on this. There are a lot of things we can still agree on. Uh, in the late 1800s, a pastor, um, a pastor by the name of uh, Charles T. Russell started teaching that Jesus was going to return in 1878, but that he was going to stay hidden until 1914. Um, and um, this didn't happen. Christ didn't come back in 1878, nor reveal himself in 1914. So one of his followers, a successor, Russell died around 1915, um, Another one of his leaders, uh, Judge J.T. Rutherford, though I found it very interesting that they called him judge because he was never a judge, but his J, Judge J.T. Rutherford said, no, he got it wrong. He's gonna, he, he, Christ is already back, but he's staying hidden. And he's going to redeem 144,000, and they started churning out this literature about how Christ had returned. Um, they started changing some of the standards of the faith, and... Um, they eventually, uh, even though Russell died and then uh, Rutherford died, and Ru Russell as well, they um, built a, a movement that's probably knocked on your door at some time in your life, uh, known as the Jehovah's Witness. Um, they built this on 
the 144,000, the return of Christ, and all of the end time prophets. It, it was a belief system built entirely not on the person and work of Jesus Christ, because their belief in the deity of Christ is off, but rather they believe that Jesus entered the world not as God, but as a man, and then after the, after the crucifixion, God made him a God, um, is, is the bottom line. Anyway, all that to say, their entire system was really built on end-time stuff. Everything kind of hinged upon it. And so, what does that have to do with us? I, I think as we look at this passage, we want to stay in a balanced place. Where we're saying, look, what matters is Jesus. Jesus was here. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Died on the cross. Resurrected, ascended to heaven, and is coming back. Now, again, we don't know all the details. Um, There are some things for us to watch out for. But when and how it happens, I think we need to hold. We hold loosely. But it still should encourage our faith. It still should speak to our faith, this return of Christ. And I know I'm doing a long introduction on this, but I I want you to kind of hang with me as I go through this, okay? So we're going to look at chapter 2, and what's great about what we've done in 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians, we've read every verse, we've looked at every verse, uh, maybe not as in-depth as you wanted us to, but in the best that we had in in the time that we had. So here's my first point this morning, and I think this is clear in the first verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, unstable times are coming. No matter how you frame it, unstable times are both here and coming in the future. Let's look at this passage together. Hopefully you have your Bibles and are turning to it yourself. You can take some notes and um, stay up with what we're saying. Here's what he says. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, look up here just for a second. It seems as if somebody has gone to the church, not only tell them that Jesus has come back, but that Paul said Jesus has come back. Uh, He's saying, don't be unsettled. If there's some letter or word or whatever that supposedly came, came from me, that the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the na- man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. I think this is one of the most challenging passages, honestly, to talk about the rapture and then the tribulation. Uh, Because it seems to me in this passage, he's saying, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. What day is that? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord happens when Jesus returns, when the rapture takes place. Now, I know there are all sorts of various views on how this could could happen with multiple raptures, depending on when the tribulation, we've got your pre-tribulation rapture, your mid-tribulation rapture, your after-tribulation rapture. There's a lot of different options looking at this. But Paul is using this... 
Paul is using this discussion to say to them, don't get bit out of shape. There are some things that has to happen before this day has come. And he uses this term about this man called the man of lawlessness. Who is this guy, the man of lawlessness? Well, in different passages, he's interpreted as different ways, and we're going to look at some of those in just a moment. But look at some of the things this man of lawlessness will do. It says, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So this man of lawlessness, at some point, if he's indeed a person, a, a historical figure, which I happen to believe he is, he will oppose God and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. He stands opposed to God uh, in many, many different ways. Now, it says in this passage as well, so that he sets himself up in God's temple. Big question here, what does he mean by God's temple? If you're going to take this passage apart, does he mean the literal temple? Which could have been the case because when Paul is writing this, the temple still stood. He may have had thoughts about the temple. But today, for instance, the temple doesn't stand. So if this is the literal temple, then the imminent return of Christ is not so imminent. You understand what I'm saying? Why? Because there's no temple. There's no temple built at this moment. So it would have to be after that temple is built. Side point, real quick. For those who hold this view, the rebuilding of the temple is critical. For the people who hold this view, this is why Christians at times so give themselves to national Israel because rather than seeing national Israel honestly as a place where God needs to move, they see national Israel as a place that they need to support so that the temple can be rebuilt, so that Jesus can come back. Which to me, by the way, is a very self-centered view. We get ours, they don't. We're just waiting for them to rebuild the temple. That's a side point. If you don't like that point, just throw it out. A lot of different views on what is this temple. Is this the church? Is this, what is, what is this temple? And again, I will say this several times this morning. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. He will oppose God. That's one of the views that you can take to the bank. He goes on and says this. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Hey, this is a key passage and it cracks me up every time I look at it. Paul is saying to them, Hey, look, when I was there, I told you what was holding him back. I told you what this was. They know we don't know. Because he's never going to say what it is that's holding them back. He's never going to, he's just saying, I told you what it was. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But just hang on to that passage for just a second. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back, well, again, he doesn't tell us. It's just something, somebody is holding it back, will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Again, to me, it's, there's a look here of Jesus returning after this man of lawlessness. Again, you can have Jesus coming back several times, which is what some um, theologies uh, look at. Um, he goes on and says, and I'm not here to argue that, just more of giving you a look of what Paul is saying here. He says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Here's my second idea about the man of lawlessness. He opposes God in everything that he does, and he is aligned with Satan. His alliance is clear that he's, he's aligned, and he'll do miracles. Uh, just a side note again, I got a bunch of these today. I'll try not to get stuck too much, but don't get so enamored with miraculous stuff that you lose your sense of discernment. Um, miracles are not always a sign pointing to God. Sometimes miracles are a sign pointing toward this man of lawlessness, the other direction, the evil. So we need the spirit of truth, the spirit of wisdom to guide us. Going on, he says, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Uh, he, he will... His third, here's my third kind of characteristic of him, though we could list probably 10 here. He, he'll deceive people with a lie rather than the truth. Um, people will tend toward, to go toward the lie rather than holding on to the truth. They refuse to love the truth. They will believe the lie, which is him, this man of lawlessness. They, they'll believe what he says. Now, one fascinating line, I'm not going to talk about this a ton, but notice what it says, God sends them. The sovereignty of God is not absent from this whole process. God sends them a delusion so that they will believe. I just want to make that clear that God is in control of all of history from beginning to end. That even when you don't see him and you're in the middle of a problem, God is still there. His sovereignty reigns over over all. All right, so these unstable times are coming. So who is this man of lawlessness, you ask? Thanks for asking. A lot of different passages talk. Most, many people say the man of lawlessness is another term for the Antichrist. Um, you probably know this, but do you know the Antichrist as a term is never used in the book of Revelation? Um, it's only used in First and Second John where he talks about the Antichrist. Paul never speaks of the, man, uh, the Antichrist. Jesus doesn't. Uh, the only place it's mentioned is in First and Second John. But there is what looks like the same. So the book of Revelation, if you remember, it talks about the dragon, who is Satan, according to most, the beast, who is this man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Now, we don't, it seems as if the beast and the false prophet are two different beings. The, the dragon is Satan, 
beast is the Antichrist, who is more of a political figure, and then the false prophet who stands against religions on the earth. So, although, if you look at this passage in The Man of Lawlessness, you can see some overlap there. Have I got you totally confused? I'm not trying to confuse you. I just want to look at this passage in such a way that you come away saying, our God is great, and I can stand in faithfulness. Here's what John says in 1 John 4, as a matter of fact. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's, even though... Revelation is going to talk about kind of the premier false prophet. John is saying, hey, many false prophets have gone out into the world, so we need to, to be on alert. And he goes on. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. John is making it clear the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. <clears throat> I, I don't mind saying this, uh, although I could, again, get in trouble. Any spirit that claims that Jesus Christ has come... No, no, no! Wow. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say what I was going to say. But I will. <laughs> I started off by talking about Jehovah's Witness. To me, any religion, it can call themselves Christian. But if they deny the deity of Christ in the flesh, it is the spirit of Antichrist, according to John. Um, and no one wants to say that, but that's what John is saying. He's saying, if you deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, has come in the flesh, then you have the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, I'm going to need some help. So just change to the next slide if you don't mind. Um, let me say this too before I go on to us maintaining a stable faith which is really what I wanted to get to but I really wanted to kind of as best I could unpack this um, in the last 2,000 years the number of people who have been claimed to be the Antichrist it, the list is unbelievably long the man of lawlessness. I mean, just about every person you can possibly imagine. Martin Luther, uh, during the Reformation, he claimed that the Pope and the Catholic Church were the Antichrist. Um, and the Catholic Church claimed that Martin Luther and the Reformers were the Antichrist. By the way, it always comes back to the Pope in evangelical circles. <laughs> At some point, the Pope is always going to be accused of being the Antichrist. Seems to be an easy target. Um, it, it, just in my lifetime, uh, and some of you are as old as I am, you can remember JFK was claimed to be the Antichrist because he was Catholic, by the way. That was a big reason. And everyone in between has been, I mean, just about everyone 
from um, JFK to Bill Gates to Barack Obama to Barney the Dinosaur to, you think I'm kidding, um, has been claimed to be the Antichrist. Now, we understand John is saying the spirit of Antichrist, any, any spirit that says Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not God, Jesus is not the Christ, is the spirit of Antichrist. But at the same time, it would probably be helpful that, oh, the latest I heard was Emmanuel Macron. Uh, anybody know who Emmanuel Macron is? Some of you don't, so don't worry about it. He's the president of, actually the president of France um, has been claimed. I, I thought they would go for Vladimir Putin, but instead, and, and again, I'm making fun, but I just don't know. I don't, I don't know all the answers here, but I do know this. In the middle of uncertainty, we can still maintain a stable faith. And here's how Paul tells us to do that. He, he says but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Next slide, please. He called you to, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. Next. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God, our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Okay, here quickly, I'm going to run through some things that will help you maintain a stable faith. The first one is this, be a thankful person. Be a thankful person. Give Give thanks. He says, but we ought always to give thanks for you. Now, Paul isn't saying necessarily to them at this point, hey, you always, you always give thanks. He's saying, I always give thanks for you. But there are other passages where he says, give thanks in all circumstances. And so one of the ways that we can maintain a stable faith is by giving thanks. Think of the opposite of this. When you become ungrateful, and unthankful, then you, you look at what you've received, not through the eyes of faith, but through the eyes of entitlement. And whenever you see things through the eyes of entitlement, like I deserve this, faith diminishes. Now listen, this whole thing on the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness or the beast, however you want to look at it, you have two choices in facing the future. You can either face it with faith or you can face it with fear. Fear, I think, is, is actually, it feeds into a lack of gratitude. Fearful people many times don't give thanks. Instead, they stay afraid and they're afraid because of what they lack. And so God wants to build faith in your life. One of the ways you can do this is by agreeing with God and, and, and being thankful. The second thing is this, know that you're loved by the Lord. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord. Really, think about it. Many times our faith diminishes because we don't think we're worthy of being loved by the Lord. Or 
we think our circumstances show us that God must not love us. Otherwise, I wouldn't be through this junk I'm going through. No, Paul is saying, look, it doesn't matter. You are loved by the Lord. Because from the beginning, he chose you to be saved. In other words, I, I know we could really get off on the doctrine of election here. And I don't think it's the point other than this, that you are held by God. Whenever you got to be chosen, we can argue with that. It's a whole different sermon. But here's what I know. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. How should I have solid faith? Man, I'm giving thanks. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. I realized I'm loved by the Lord and I am held by the Lord. It is him who holds on to me, not me who holds on to him. Right? In other words, God has, has me grasped in his hand. Next. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is what God has done for you. He loves you that much. He saved you. Going on, he says, again, I'm just going through chapter uh, 2, that you chose to be saved through what? The sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here's the great thing, is that God doesn't leave you where you were. God doesn't just stick you there and leave you. He is in the process, when his Spirit indwells you, of his working his way out and making, yourself, making you holy. Um, he's sanctifying you through and through. Uh, your whole spirit, soul, and body is being kept blameless. The Spirit of God is doing this. Listen, you need the Spirit of God. I have given up, just to let you know, in case you come to see me for counseling. I've given up telling people to just behave. Stop it. Stop being an idiot. Stop being stupid. Stop doing that sin. Stop doing that. Stop this. Stop that. Why? Why? Because they can't. They can't stop being idiots. They're just stupid through and through. <laughs> In a loving way. <laughs> From my perspective. Which is always right. Um, but what I do know this the Spirit of God is greater than he who is in the world. The Spirit of God is greater than me. I, they can't do it, but if I can pray for them and let the Spirit of God be released in their life, then this sanctifying work from the inside out can change them. It's our best hope. It's our only hope. It's my only hope to change my behavior is not from the out. It's not behavior modification. It's not from changing from the outside in, it's changing from the inside out and letting the Spirit of God work his way out from within me. And I do this by belief in the truth, holding on to the truth. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, this beast, what he's bringing is not truth. I need to hold on to the truth. Now, some of us, I, I don't want to get caught in the minutia of where what kind of truth? But the truth is this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Word made flesh who made his dwelling among us. That is the truth. I have to hold on to that truth of what God is, who Jesus is, that he died on a cross for the forgiveness of my sins. 
he was raised from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us, and that he will return. All the stuff we claimed in the Apostles' Creed, we have to hang on to the truth. It is the only way that we're going to make it, we're going to make it through this. And lastly in this, uh, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus. By the way, uh, just to say this, you got to stay in community. All of these yous here are plural, not singular. They are not, oh, you individually, you individually, you individually. No, you, you have to stay in this. The church, we need to stay in community. Our Our faith not only diminishes, I think it's in danger when we go out on our own and try to go it solo. We need each other. We need the community of faith, whatever that looks like in your life. It may be a home church. It may be a home group. It may be a church like this. It might be a big church like Church of the Highlands. It may be, I don't know what your community, but you've got to be in a community of faith because faith is built in the context of, the context of community. Okay, so let's review, and then I'm done. How are we going to hold on to the stable faith? How are we going to? We're going to give thanks, right? We are going to know that God loves us. If I can have the worship team move, we need to believe that God saves you, us. We need to allow the Spirit of God to work in us. We need to hold on to the truth, and we need to stay in community. I believe these aspects will help us build a stable faith for whatever comes, whatever the uncertainty of the days ahead. And the uncertainty of the days ahead, listen, I'm not saying that the Antichrist, this individual, this person is coming right now. We just, we just don't know. But this I know. The spirit of the Antichrist has already been released and is at work within the world. Therefore, we need to hold on. We need this stable faith to help us go through the circumstances we're going through. Just for a second, close your eyes. If you, if you would say, Pastor, hey, just pray for me. I need, I need this faith because of the circumstances that I'm going through. There are some things in my life that are trying to shatter my, my faith. There are some things where the enemy, I can see him trying to take me out. And I'm going to ask you to do this. If that's you and you just want me to pray for you, um, just have the boldness to stand up for just a minute and let me pray for you. You're asking for that mountain-moving faith that we sang about earlier to move in your lives. Let me encourage you to do this. Just If you don't feel uncomfortable doing it, you don't have to. Just hold out your hands before the Lord to receive what He wants to do right now in your life. Lord, I pray for those who are standing right now. They, they're, they're asking 
They have circumstances in their life where the enemy seems to be coming against them. They have circumstances in their life where maybe they've even um, participated in a way that has short-circuited the path of their lives. And they have something where they need to see you move. So I pray that God, Spirit of God, you would move right now. You would move in might and in power that faith would rise up within them. A faith that comes not from themselves, but as a gift from you. I pray that you would, Spirit of God, work in their lives to change the areas that need to be changed, that chains would be broken off, that there would be truth that be, would be received, that whatever the lies of the enemy that are coming against them right now, to either accuse or tell them something that's not true, that that voice would be silenced and instead they would receive the truth. Lord, I pray knowing that all of us face an uncertain future that will in some ways try to diminish our faith, but God, we can stand firm. difficult discussion about what is the future for Israel. Uh, it, it's really a challenging passage to look at as he's talked about um, the, the work of God in the Gentile wor world and then begins to look and say, what, what is God going to do with the Jews? What is he going to do with the nation of Israel? And it's a very complicated discussion, but here's what happens at the end of it. Paul just breaks out in song. He, he, he threw this, he's just so overwhelmed by the glory of God that he, at the end of Romans 11, and it's, it's not a placement to me for a doxology, but for Paul it is because he sees that his faith in God can stand bigger even in the midst of a difficult situation and discussion. And so here's what he says, and I want you to read it with me so that this can be our confession today. Read it with me. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Before we leave today, let's just worship the Lord. Let faith rise up even in a greater way.